This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, April 11th, 2016, episode 22, concerning Alfred the Bone Hunter. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode, we're going to return to Simeon of Durham's tract on the origins and progress of this, the Church of Durham, uh, which we last heard from in episodes three and four concerning the murder of Bishop Walker. This time, we have a much less violent, though no less curious, story centered around the acquisition of some important Northumbrian relics. The main character of our story today, uh, Elfred, or Alfred, the sacrist of Durham, is uh, a rather tertiary figure, historically speaking, Um, but his fame derives from his special devotion to two leading lights of the Northumbrian church. So to understand his story, we need to have at least a little sense of who these two figures were. The first is St. Cuthbert, who lived in the mid to late 600s, um, about 400 years before Alfred's time in the 11th century, uh, the setting for today's text. The story of Cuthbert is too big to get into in this episode, um, and Simeon relates heaps of tales surrounding Cuthbert and the wanderings of his relics uh, that I have in my stockpile for future medieval death trip episodes. All you really need to know for our purposes today is that Cuthbert is something of a founding figure for the Northern Church, who eventually wound up enshrined at Durham Cathedral, and was by far the most prestigious saintly patron that community could claim. Linked to Cuthbert is the Venerable Bede, our second figure. Bede would have been a child when Cuthbert died, uh, and he grew up in the twin monastic communities of Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow, among men who had known Cuthbert, and Bede went on to write both a verse and a prose life of Cuthbert. Of course, he's most famous for his monumental text, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which is one of the great works of medieval historiography and hugely influential on history writing in its day and beyond. Um, Again, the career of Bede is a big topic in itself, uh, though a bit more sedate than Cuthbert's life. Um, But for our story today, the details of his life are rather less important than what happened to him after his death. Bede dies in 735 and is buried at Jarrow, already a celebrated figure. Unlike Cuthbert, uh, though he is recognized as a man of holy life and great scholarly achievement, uh, he's not a miracle worker, and there isn't much evidence for a cult of Bede in the first decades following his death, but he was no doubt revered in some fashion at Jarrow. However, at the end of the century, in 793, Viking raiders famously sacked the monastery at Lindisfarne, and the next year they sacked Jarrow, and we have entered the Viking Age in Britain, which brought huge disruptions to northern England for the next two centuries. And at some point in the middle of the 800s, in the wake of further destruction, Jarrow is apparently abandoned. 
there is some uncertainty about the nature of this abandonment, but it's a question that matters for how we interpret today's story. Um, as we'll see in just a moment, we're told that our main character, Alfred, has a custom of visiting Jarrow, uh, which is only about 20 miles away from Durham, where Alfred lives. But he would visit uh, Jarrow on the anniversary of Bede's death to show his devotion. What Simeon's account doesn't really make clear is what Jarrow was like when this story is occurring, uh, sometime probably in the 1050s. Some historians have argued that it would have been abandoned ruins, in which case the image of Alfred sitting out his night's vigils there is considerably eerie. Uh, but there is some archaeological evidence, uh, along with hints in today's story uh, that we'll come back to later, uh, that there was some kind of active community still organizing observances at Jero, and that we should picture Alfred as a visitor to a kind of modest pilgrimage site. Um, purely for dramatic purposes, I've given the text a sound design that skews towards the eerie ruin rather than the local church fate, um, but we should maybe keep both possibilities in our minds as we, as we listen. The story of Bede after this moment in the 1050s will become the central narrative of our text. But before we get to that text, one uh, interesting sidebar about the abandonment of Jero. In 1993, an attraction called Bede's World was opened at Jero, uh, which included a museum, a reconstruction of an Anglo-Saxon farm, uh, living history exhibits, and things like that. Um, and I've just been saddened to discover, as I went to look for pictures of Bede's World to maybe put up on the blog, that uh, Bede's World was closed down due to lack of funds just this past February. Uh, I never got to go there. Um, but it certainly had been an itinerary candidate for me uh, for any future trips to Britain. Um, I mean, I've been to enough American living history tourist stops, uh, usually colonial or pioneer sites, to know that the quality can range from enormously impressive and memorable to kind of sad and cringeworthy. And I have no idea really where Bede's World fell on that spectrum. But I'd be interested to hear from any listeners who had the fortune, good or ill, to visit there, uh, who might share their impressions. The news reports hint that there might be some hope of reopening under new or reorganized management, but there have apparently been quite a few museum casualties in England uh, under the current austerity. It would be quite sad, I think, for Northern England to have some of its centers of learning and culture left pillaged and abandoned once again. All right, on to our story. As I've said, this account comes from Simeon of Durham, who is writing about 50 years after Alfred's visit to Jero, uh, so sometime in the first decade of the 12th century. Uh, one quick note on Alfred's name. As with so many medieval names, there are multiple spellings out there. Uh, sometimes you'll find it Alfred with an ash, you know, the conjoined A and E, uh, and sometimes with just a plain A, as in the modern spelling of Alfred, like Batman's butler. Um, but I'm going to go with Alfred with an E, because that's how it's spelled in Simeon's Latin, and because I like the sound of it better than Alfred. The translation I'm using today is primarily that of Joseph Stevenson from 1855, with a few emendations based on David Rollison's 2000 translation, uh, as well as a few adjustments of my own. 
Under Bishop Edmund, there flourished in that church a certain presbyter, whose works of piety and religion had earned for him an intimate familiarity with St. Cuthbert. His name was Alfred, and he survived until the days of Bishop Egelwyn. He was a man devoted in every respect to St. Cuthbert, of much sobriety, full of almsgiving, unceasing in prayers, terrible to the lascivious and impure, but one who was held in respect by the God-fearing and the lovers of what is honest. He was a most faithful sacristan of the church, and one whom even bishops were cautious how they offended, because they knew how intimate he was with the Holy Confessor. For when Bishop Egelric and his brother Athelwyn, who succeeded him, and the monks who were with them, wished, in addition to the property of the church which they had plundered, to carry off the holy relics of the saints also, and to transfer them to their own monasteries, it is well known that they were restrained from the commission of this act of injustice by their fear of this priest aforesaid. It was his custom to chant the Psalter each night, and when that was done, he used to ring the bell for nocturnal vigils. Moreover, he was most assiduous in instructing the boys in the service of God, and he carefully taught them day by day how to sing and read and how to conduct the ministrations of the church. He had in his possession one of the hairs of the Most Holy Father Cuthbert, which it was his wont frequently to exhibit to those friends who visited him, and whilst they were wondering at the sanctity of the holy man, he made them wonder still more by means of this hair. For he used to fill a censer with glowing coals, and to lay that hair upon them, and although it continued thereon for a long time, it could not be burned, but rather it grew white and glittered like gold in the fire. And after it had remained there for a considerable period, on its removal it recovered, little by little, its former appearance. Not only did many of his disciples witness this miracle, but one of the brethren of this monastery, named Gamel, affirmed that he had very frequently seen the same occurrence, a man of much simplicity and humility, who is now asleep in the Lord. Now, while this priest aforesaid was leading an honest and religious life, he was commanded by a vision to visit in succession the sites of the ancient monasteries and churches in the province of the Northumbrians. And he raised from the earth the bones of such of the saints as he knew were buried in these places, and he enshrined them above ground, in order that they might be exhibited to the people and venerated. I allude to the bones of Balther and Bilfred, the anchorites, of Acca also and Alkmund, the bishops of Hexham, and of King Oswin, as also those of the venerable abbesses Abba and Athelgitha. A portion of all these relics he conveyed with him to Durham and deposited them along with the body of the Father Cuthbert. Admonished by a revelation, he went to the monastery of Melrose, where he translated the bones of St. Boisel, who had formerly been the master of the blessed Cuthbert in that same monastery, and having deposited them in the church of his disciple, he honorably placed them in a second shrine, similar to that in which they had formerly rested, near the body of St. Cuthbert. It was his custom, also, annually to visit the monastery of Jarrow, in which, as he was aware, the Dr. Bede had lived, died, and was buried upon the approach of the anniversary of his decease, and there to devote himself to prayers and vigils. Upon a certain occasion he went there, as was his custom, 
And after having spent some days there within the church in solitude, praying and watching, very early in the morning he returned alone to Durham, without his companions knowing, a thing which he had never done before. For he seemed like one who did not choose to have any witness of his secret. Although he lived for many years after this event, he did not trouble himself ever again to visit that said monastery of Jero, but he conducted himself like a person who had secured the object of his desires. Being frequently asked by his intimate friends where was the resting place of the bones of the venerable Bede, his usual answer, given with the promptitude of a man who knew what he was talking about, was to this effect. No one knows better about this than I do. Dearly beloved, consider this as a thing most firmly and most certainly established, that the same shrine which contains the most holy body of the Father Cuthbert contains also the bones of the teacher and monk Bede. Let no one seek for any portion of his relics outside the covering of this shrine. Having thus spoken, he enjoined his friends to keep the matter quiet, lest the outsiders who were resident in that church should plot some treachery, for their most anxious wish was to carry off, if it were possible, the relics of the saints, and chiefly those of Bede. For this reason, when he deposited the bones of those saints with the body of St. Cuthbert, as has already been mentioned, he took good care to do this secretly. His account of Bede agrees also with that poem in the English language, which, after having treated of the state of this place and the relics of the saints which are therein deposited, makes mention of the relics of Bede, along with the others which are there enshrined. It is well known that his bones were those which were discovered many years subsequently, deposited along with the uncorrupted body of the Father Cuthbert, where they had been kept separate from the other relics by being contained in a linen bag. Many other memorable incidents are told of this same individual, things which he did when specially told to do so by St. Cuthbert in a vision, and things which he foretold would happen in the future. For the innocence and pious simplicity of the men who lived at that time achieved much with St. Cuthbert, and in consequence, he was in the habit of constantly defending them from their enemies and speedily avenging any injuries which were inflicted upon them. So there we have the tale of how Alfred brought Bede to Durham. Uh, one quick little note to settle before we get into the meat of this story, or maybe bones is more appropriate. The poem in the English language that Simeon refers to is almost certainly the Old English poem Durham, or some version of it, uh, a 21-line poem praising the merits of Durham as a place. And it includes these relevant lines. Is there in a midhelm Ethelwold Bishop, and Brema Boker Abeda, and Boiselabbot, the Kleine Cadberta on Yacheta, Lerde Lustum, and He his Lara Wellianom? Which Stevenson translates to, Therein, along with them, is Athelwald the Bishop, 
and the illustrious author Bede, and Boisel the abbot, who taught the pure Cuthbert willingly in his youth, and well did he receive his instruction. It has to be said that Simeon isn't exactly marshalling the most compelling evidence here, that these are definitely the relics of Bede residing in his cathedral, but this claim was widely accepted. The first thing, though, that might seem odd to us is how little ethical concern there seems to be in this account over the admitted fact that Alfred absconded in secret with the remains of one of the region's most famous saints. I know when I first read this story, uh, I was quite taken aback. Now, if you assume that Jero is a deserted ruin, then it maybe doesn't seem as shockingly bold of an action. Um, though in that case, why does Alfred do it so secretly? All the other lost Northumbrian saints were told he went out and located and dug up and revealed quite publicly. There are two possible explanations for the covertness of Alfred's procurement of Bede for Durham. The first I touched on in the introduction to the text, which is that maybe Jero wasn't so abandoned. Maybe there were locals who liked having Bede there and wouldn't be too keen on someone taking him away. And, as I mentioned, there's some archaeological evidence for activity at Jero after its 9th century desolation. And this account of Alfred's annual pilgrimage and his measures to conceal his taking of the relics uh, actually provide further evidence to support this claim. The other explanation is that even if there would have been no resistance at Jero for the taking of the relics, it's also true, as Simeon himself reminds us, that Durham at this time was in the hands of a series of rather predatory bishops who had few qualms about taking the cathedral's possessions for themselves. This is directly offered as the explanation for why Alfred kept the relics a secret for years, uh, even after relocating them. But it might also explain why he concealed this act even from the companions who had traveled with him to Jarrow. Walls have ears and all that. Interestingly, the idea that maybe he kept quiet because stealing relics is a shameful or even criminal act is probably not a factor here. There's a great book by Patrick Geary called Furta Sacra, all about relic thefts in the 9th to 11th centuries. Um, now, he doesn't actually cover Alfred in this book, but he does show how theft was generally accepted as a valid way for communities to acquire relics. Uh, there is a bit of a shadow over relic theft like this, and typical relic theft narratives do usually build in extra justifications for the act, but for the most part, the ends, a good religious community acquiring a saintly patron, justify the means. Geary presents a number of reasons for this, um, but one of the simplest um, and the easiest to convey in a sentence or two uh, is this. Relics are perceived as the presence of the saint him or herself. They aren't symbols or reminders of the saint. They are the saint, a supernaturally living member of the community. In this sense, relics aren't stolen so much as they are kidnapped. And since a saint has miraculous powers, a saint can't be relocated against his or her will. Therefore, if the theft is successful, that means it of necessity has the saint's blessing, that the saint wanted to be relocated to a new community. The only bad relic thefts are the ones that fail. Thus, 
For today's story, Bede clearly wanted to join Cuthbert at Durham, and Alfred was merely his humble servant. Now, I've had this story of Alfred in my files for use in this podcast uh, since before I even recorded the first episode a year and a half ago. Um, I had no particular motivation in picking it out to do now, um, and so I was surprised when I was refreshing my notes on Alfred this past week to see that he actually made the news this fall. That had, that had passed me by, and probably because it was news in a few British newspapers. Um, these articles were in response to a paper published in the Antiquaries Journal last fall by Joanna Story and Richard N. Bailey entitled The Skull of Bede. This paper looks at the relatively recent rediscovery of a cast of the partial skull of the Venerable Bede that turned up in a university collection. This was a cast made in 1831 when the tomb of Bede in Durham Cathedral was opened up and excavated by the antiquarian James Rain. This is an interesting story, and if Alfred's tale itself was maybe a bit on the short side, we can supplement it with this second encounter with Bede's remains. Uh, or maybe it should be the third encounter if we count the monks of Simeon's day who found Alfred's secret when they opened up Cuthbert's tomb and found the linen bag of relics. Um, and actually, there's at least one more intervening encounter after that. Um, so, well, let's just tell the story. After the opening of Cuthbert's tomb and the discovery of the linen bag containing Bede's remains, uh, which were presumably a collection of bone fragments, this was a skeleton that should have been around 300 years old when Alfred found it, after all. Bede's relics were put into their own shrine, which was kept with Cuthbert's shrine in the cathedral until around 1370, uh, when they were moved to their own tomb-slash-shrine in the Galilee Chapel of Durham Cathedral. Here they remained until Henry VIII ordered the dissolution of the monasteries and the destruction of the Shrine to the Saints, so that in 1542, the king's agents dismantled Bede's tomb. Though these men apparently did reinter the remains in the same spot, uh, but down in the floor, rather than up in an idolatrous shrine. There the bones lay until 1831, when having already opened up and examined the tomb of Cuthbert a few years earlier, Dr. Rain opened up the resting place of Bede. In their article, Story and Bailey quote a chunk of Rain's account of what he found in the tomb, uh, which was interesting, so I thought I'd go back to the source and share with you uh, a longer extract of Rain's description of this excavation, uh, which he recorded in his 1833 book, A Brief Account of Durham Cathedral. So we'll hear that in just a second, um, but first, another of our usual quick context notes. Uh, among the items found within the grave, Rain mentions things called abbey pieces. What he means by this is somewhat unclear. Uh, in a slightly different published account of the excavation, he specifies that these abbey pieces were, quote, thin copper coins of the Hanseatic towns. But the more technical meaning of abbey pieces is as a kind of coin minted by abbeys themselves, there's a nice description from Richard Warner's 1826 book, History of the Abbey of Glaston and the Town of Glastonbury. Uh, he writes, Independently of the current coin of the realm, the privileged abbeys minted counters also, or abbey pieces, which, before the general use of the Arabic numbers, were employed to assist computation, 
and to settle their different accounts. The sum, whatever it might be, was performed by a known arrangement of these counters within the squares of a cloth which covered their exchequer table. Such was the early mode of executing arithmetical processes at the government receipt court initiated by William the Conqueror, called the Exchequer, from the checkered cloth that covered the table on which the royal dues were computed and the payments made. So the etymology of Exchequer given here is, in fact, more or less backed up by the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, though the OED notes that it is conjectural. Um, and indeed, it goes back to a medieval explanation from 1178 by Richard, the Bishop of London. And medieval writers aren't exactly known for the reliability of the etymologies they provide. But apparently, it's plausible enough to be widely accepted. Um, at any rate, an abbey piece of whatever precise origin or function uh, is basically a penny. Uh, it's a very low-grade bit of coinage. Um, probably of more value as a souvenir than as hard currency. Anyway, I, th I think that's a bit of interesting historical trivia to sock away for a rainy day's pub quiz. All right, and here is Rain's account of the opening of Bede's tomb in the Galilee Chapel. In the course of the year 1830, the tomb which covers the remains of Bede was examined into down to the level of the pavement upon which it stands, and perhaps somewhat deeper, and the only discoveries then made were a few abbey pieces, a half a crown of William and Mary, a French coin of metal resembling gold, powdered with fleur-de-lis, and a small, circular, flattened piece of lead, all of which had apparently been pushed through the chinks in the side masonry of the tomb from time to time. The monument was carefully replaced, but in 1831, further investigations were made, attended with more interesting discoveries. On the 27th of May, in the above year, by a singular coincidence the day of Bede's anniversary, the tomb was again removed, when, after finding a few more abbey pieces in their course downwards, the workmen, at a depth of about three feet from the level of the floor, came in contact with the following human bones which, although by no means furnishing the full complement of those belonging to a perfect skeleton, appeared nevertheless to have been purposely arranged in their respective places, in a coffin of the full size, of which, though in a very decomposed state, there were numerous traces. 1. The Calvarium, tolerably perfect, consisting of the os frontis and the ossa parietalia, the former so remarkably flat, still more so than that of Cuthbert above, that a cast was made of the whole bone before its reinterment. 2. The ossa temporalia, and portions of the bone of the basis of the skull. 3. The lower jaw, apparently that of a man advanced in years, who had lost the greater part of his teeth at an early age. The cavities from which the teeth had fallen had disappeared in the bone, so that a considerable portion of time must have intervened between that period and the death of the individual to whom the jaw had belonged. 4 a portion of the malar bones. 5. The heads of both the humera. 6. The radius and ulna of one forearm. 7. The os humeri of the other. 8. A portion of the sternum. 9. The thigh bones. 10. Eight bones of the tarsi of the feet. 
The above bones were found, as we have already stated, stretched along a space of nearly six feet in length, and that the grave had contained no other human remains was proved by very careful investigation. For this fact we can perhaps give a reason. Bede's bones, real or reputed, for this is a matter into which we have no inclination to inquire, were widely dispersed. Much we say to the profit of the man who was reported to have stolen them from their first resting place at Jero. There were few monasteries in England which could not boast of some of them, and even now, in more than one church upon the continent, the curious in these matters may see some of his ribs. We must not omit to mention that in the upper part of the grave, apparently in the place which the right hand would have occupied if elevated for the benediction, was discovered a massy ring of iron, plated with a thick coat of gold, and containing upon a boss the device of a sinkfoil, a common ornament at the time of the dissolution, when these bones were buried. No priest during the reign of popery was buried or enshrined without his ring. Perhaps this of which we are writing had been a hasty present to so memorable a man by those who laid his remains in the ground, in conformity with the custom, and in the stead of a more valuable ring which had been taken away by the king's commissioners. We know that these men carried off with them a splendid ring from the coffin of Cuthbert, and, what we forgot to mention above, one of the teeth of our saint. According to history, they found Cuthbert's body safe and sound, wanting nothing save the breath of life, and yet history tells us that they deprived him of one of his teeth as a memorial, we suppose, of his incorruptibility. This reminds us of the man in Heracles who, when he wanted to sell his house, carried about with him one of its bricks as a sample. To jest no longer, he must have been a bold man who could have taken such a liberty with such a body in such a state of preservation. But upon this subject, there is no need for further remark. The ring found in the grave of Bede was lined internally with one or two folds of thick woolen cloth to accommodate it apparently to the substance upon which it had been placed. But of that substance, no characteristic trace remained. The ring and the abbey pieces were placed in the library along with the coins, etc., discovered during the previous imperfect investigation first mentioned. The bones were, the day afterwards, reinterred in a box of oak, covered with lead, in which was enclosed a memorial upon parchment of the whole particulars of the exhumation, and then, upon the upper slab of the tomb, which was carefully replaced, was cut soon afterwards the old inscription, Haxunt in fossa bede venerabilis ossa, of which the penultimate word is said to have been supplied by an angel to the monk, who, when wishing to commemorate Bede by an epitaph and writing in Leonines, had got fossa and ossa as his jingling words, with the first, second, third, and fifth words of his hexameter, but was unable to complete his line. After puzzling his brains for a long time in vain, he fell asleep in despair, and upon his awaking, found the hiatus miraculously supplied. Bishop Cousin, 1660-1674, composed an epitaph for Bede, which was written upon parchment and was suspended in a frame near his tomb, but it has gone to decay. There is a copy in the library, in the handwriting of its author, and it has been printed by Smith and Hutchison. It might, with great propriety, be cut upon a plain tablet of marble and affixed to the nearest wall. No other church in the world can boast of such a man under the circumstances of his period. So that's Rain's Excavation.
In fact, Story and Bailey show that three casts of Bede's skull were made, though in the intervening years, all were thought to have been lost. That is, until one turned up recently, quite clearly labeled in a snazzy blue box in the Duckworth Laboratory Collection in the Leverholm Center for Human Evolutionary Studies at the University of Cambridge. Uh, this cast was originally part of the collection of John Thurnham, a 19th century ethnologist, psychiatrist, and craniologist, uh, which is to say a kind of proto-phrenologist. And through a series of donations, the skull eventually made its way into the Duckworth collection. Thurnham is a peculiar character himself, as described by Story and Bailey, um, and his interest in tracking the skull shapes of early Britain raises uh, lots of ugly bits of ideology, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, he partook of the ideas of his age and class about the relative intellectual capacities of different races based on skull shape, uh, and I'm only bringing that up because it does relate to the skull of Bede, because the skull Rain sent him failed to meet Thurnham's expectations for the cranial shape of a British genius, uh, because, as Rain described earlier, this skull has quite a low, shallow forehead, which in Thurnham's view was characteristic of intellectual limitations and was a trait of, quote, the lowest races. Uh, so Thurnham used the story of Alfred's theft of the relics to explain how the wrong person's skull, now presumably someone of low continental peasant stock, could have wound up in Bede's tomb at Durham. Interestingly, though you might expect in our age of even greater skepticism and better scientific methodologies, uh, that while rejecting his racist reasoning, we might still side with Thurnham's position that this is most likely just some random skull conveniently called that of Bede by a community who would greatly profit from it, uh, Story and Bailey actually make a pretty decent case that there's no good reason to deny that the bones examined by Rain in 1831 are at least the same bones that Alfred brought to Durham in the 1050s. Uh, and furthermore, that it's actually entirely plausible that the remains he collected at Jarrow were indeed those of Bede from his original tomb. Uh, compared to many other relics out there, this one doesn't have a particularly complicated or obscure chain of custody to track. And I think we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I did give you a medieval mystery word last week, and as we'll see, that word is relevant to today's story. Our word was cruft, C-R-U-F-T, cruft. Now, in modern parlance, you'll find the word cruft used to describe the accumulation of extraneous features or junk in products or texts, um, and especially in programming and coding. Uh, I have some experience with web design, and there, cruft is what we call all the little bibs and bobs that infiltrate web pages over time. All the little different social media buttons and sharing features and related content sidebars and pop-up assistant features and all the other largely useless stuff that builds up like a crust around the core content that you're actually supposed to care about. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, this usage of cruft is of unknown origin, but probably is just a slangy, expressive word that mixes and merges crust and scruff and scurf and 
other words associated with layers of dirt or buildup. Uh, and it was already being used in tech circles as early as 1959, though the example the OED gives, though it comes from an MIT publication, uh, appears to me to be using the word to refer to actual rubbish in the break room rather than junk code. Our medieval cruft, alas, is not related to computer cruft. It is, as I'm citing it at least, an Old English word that means crypt or tomb. In fact, it doesn't just mean crypt, it actually is crypt. Uh, it's an English variant of the Latin crypta, or crypta with a U, uh, substituting an F for the P, which is a common sound change. Um, it's a change that's in line with Grimm's Law, uh, which any of you who have taken an intro linguistics course probably have some vague memories of. Uh, Grimm's Law predicts, for example, the difference between the Latin pater and the Germanic father. Now, that difference is more about deeper evolutionary branches in Indo-European languages, uh, but it still highlights the capacity for P's to slide into F's. And it's also worth noting that Latin took crypt from Greek, crypte, uh, a vault or covered place, which itself comes from the ancient Greek verb, kryptein, to hide or conceal, which brings us back around, in a way, to Alfred's secret mission. This Old English cruft goes on to evolve further into croft, with an O, uh, which appears in Middle English and also means a crypt or a vault or a cave. Now, there's two different crofts. Uh, there's this one, and then there's a more common croft that also comes from Old English uh, and from deeper Germanic roots as opposed to Latin ones. Uh, and that croft means a pasture or field. And that's the croft you're likely to find in place names, for example. Our cruft croft survives in the word undercroft, which is an underground crypt in a church or other building. And this brings us to a final interesting modern connection. The Tomb Raider herself, Lara Croft. Uh, according to Wikipedia, when the first Tomb Raider game was being developed, she was originally going to be called Laura Cruz and was South American in origin. But Eidos, the publisher, uh, wanted to make her British, and they supposedly picked the name Croft out of an English phone book just as a good-sounding name. If this is true, then it's purely coincidence that Lara Croft's name can also mean tomb. Of course, this is Wikipedia we're talking about, so who knows? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there's more legend and invented memories surrounding the origins of Lara Croft from a few decades ago than there are surrounding the bones buried in Durham Cathedral. Also, it should be noted that in many cases, the last name Croft uh, comes from the field version of Croft. Um, it's like the last name Field or Meadows, uh, though Croft can also be a variation on the last name craft. But still, there's an odd little connection there. And so we switch from mystery word to riddle. Here is our new riddle, appropriate to a discussion of the appreciation of saints. Which be the most profitable saints in the church? That question again. Which be the most profitable saints in the church? I'll have the answer for you in about two weeks with our next episode. Until then, 
Uh, we'll be hanging out in all the usual places. You can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can leave comments on the website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also find further information about the texts referenced in this and every episode. I'll even put a link up there to pictures of Bede's skull and its nifty blue tin box. And you can email me with your thoughts, questions, or corrections. I'm Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Until next time, may your bones rest where you want them to, and thanks for listening.